Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. Paul speaks frequently about Jews and Gentiles. At the end of last week's study, he made a very significant statement, and that is, if you take an uncircumcised man, a Gentile, but nevertheless, that individual is sensitive to the Word of God. He listens to his conscience, and he responds in obedience to the Word of God, to the purposes of God. Paul says, even though this one is uncircumcised, God is going to see him as circumcised, meaning a covenantal member of the family of God. He is going to see that right heart as a circumcised heart. And conversely, the Jewish individual, even though according to the letter, according to circumcision, they are a covenant member. But here's the problem. If they are transgressing the word of God, God's instruction, God is not going to see that circumcision as relevant. In fact, the scripture says he is going to render that in his mind, and that's what matters, the mind of God. He is going to render that circumcision and account it for uncircumcision. What we need to see is the importance of being an individual that surrenders to the instructions of God. Now, based upon what Paul said at the end of chapter 2, that may cause some people to say this, that being Jewish is of very little value, or of any, not putting any significance whatsoever. But would Paul agree to that? Well, to answer that question, take out your Bible and look with me to the book of Romans and chapter 3. What Paul says in the first part of this section may indeed be surprising to you, especially after what we learned at the end of chapter 2. Let's study together Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, what is the advantage of Jewishness, being a Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Now, again, we might think not very important, not that beneficial. But what does Paul say? Well, keep reading. He says in verse 2, that first word, much. And this means much in a significant manner. And he goes on to say, just not much, but he says, according to every manner, all manner of life. This has significance, much significance. And then notice what he pinpoints. Of all the things that God has done 
for the Jewish people and with the Jewish people. What is going to be emphasized here? Well, as we keep reading, he says, middle of verse 2, first, for first, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now that word that's oftentimes translated oracles comes from the same Greek term for word, just a different form of it. And it has to do with the utterance of God, what God has said. Now, this is important for a couple different reasons, one of which is this. This verse tells us clearly that scripture, what scripture? All the scripture. It says that the oracles of God, what God uttered, and the implication is what he uttered to humanity. He uttered it, and it was written down as the New Testament says, that God moved in holy men. They were inspired to write down perfectly the word of God, the word of God without any error whatsoever, fully inspired and inerrant. And all of that came through Israel, the Jewish people. And therefore, if you're not Jewish, you owe a degree of thanksgiving to the Jewish people for faithfully preserving, first writing it down, receiving it, writing down, and preserving it for you. So first he says that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, verse 3. Now we know many Jewish people rejected the gospel, did not walk in faith. We see that at the very beginning during those 40 years in the wilderness, during the kingdom, when the kingdom was divided was because of faithlessness, because of idolatry. So all of this is a sad history. But notice what Paul says. For if certain ones were faithless, meaning didn't obey, did not believe, is this their unbelief? Does it, and the word is, render null and void the faithfulness of God? Is God dependent upon Israel, the Jewish people? No. He has chosen to use them, and he will. We're going to see, for example, when we get into Romans chapter 11 in several months from now, we're going to see that God says his call, his gifts are irrevocable. He is not going to take them away. He's not going to replace them with someone else. He is going to use them for what he said because God is faithful. Their faithlessness, their disobedience, does not render the faithfulness of God in void. That's what the scripture is saying. And notice how Paul, even the thought of it, what does he say to one who, who would assume that or be bold to state that? He says the term, mi genoto, which means may it never be. Many times it's translated with the phrase, God forbid. Then we see, but God let him be truthful. And that's what it is. God is always, God is always truthful. And what Paul is saying is this. The fact that his people, whether we're talking about the Old Testament people, 
the Jewish people, or New Testament believers, whether they be Jew or Gentile. When we fail God, when we disobey, when we walk in rebelliousness, and at times we're all guilty of that, none of that affects the holiness, the righteousness that God is faithful. So we're going to see here in very clear terms. He says, does their faithlessness, their disobedience, their disbelief renders void the faithfulness of God? He says, God forbid. But let God be truthful and every man, and this is the truth, God's truthful and every man is a liar. Just as it's been written, so that you be justified in your words and victorious in your judgment. Now, it's important because what it's saying is this. Not God pouring out his judgment, but rather him being evaluated, him being judged based upon his word. And when God is judged, and we can think of this being evaluated according to what he said, you know what we find out? That God is perfectly, did you hear that? God is perfectly righteous. He is just. His word, what he says, he keeps perfectly. There is never any criticism that is proper towards God. If you view God based upon his word, you will find everything that he says he keeps, everything that's revealed about him is factual. That's what it's saying when God, when you evaluate, when he is judged by what he said. You're going to find that what he says and what he does are equal with one another. And this is what we should strive to be as well. So God is truthful. Every man is a liar, just as it's written. Thus, that you are justified with your words and you prevail when you could say he is evaluated, when you are evaluated. Look now at verse five. But if our unrighteousness, and he's speaking about how when God judges things, when God puts forth his word in practice, what does it do? Well, it says concerning our unrighteousness. It says the righteousness of God stands prevalent. It is understood. It is shown to be. So we see a very important truth that the next few verses are going to deal with, and that is this. When a human being is unrighteous, God's word, what he promises to do and what he brings about on that unrighteousness, his actions manifest his faithfulness, manifest that he is a righteous God. So our lack of obedience, our disobedience, our rebelliousness really manifests the, the righteousness of God. He goes on to say, what should we say? Based upon that, is it proper to say that, that God is, is unrighteous, the one who brings his wrath? And he says, now I, I talk as a man. What people have said. Now, hear this very carefully because this has 
large theological implications. What it's saying is this. Is it right to say that if disobedience, if human disobedience, and God, God deals with that, God sets it in order, and therefore him doing that manifests his glory, manifests his righteousness, it teaches us about him, those are all good things. So if my disobedience, my unrighteousness in the end manifests the glory of God, therefore my disobedience brought about a good outcome, I shouldn't be punished for that. I should be rewarded. Now that is one of the most ridiculous and blasphemous statements that a person can make. But this is how people were speaking. And others were being accused who would be like me saying, this is ridiculous, this is wrong. They were being accused, as we'll see in a moment, of teaching that. This is not the case. It gets worse. Look now to, to verse 6. In regard to that, that, that principle, that view, that, that someone does evil, because of that evil, God responds, he keeps his word, he punishes, and glory is manifested, his righteousness is seen. Therefore, is, is God unrighteous in punishing and bringing wrath upon evildoers? Is this right? God's unrighteous? Notice what it says once more. That same Greek phrase, me geneto, let it never be. God forbid. He says, if this was the case, that, that someone should never be judged because their disobedience gives God the opportunity to show his righteousness. Then he says, in the middle of verse 6, he says, then how is it? Actually, the end of verse 6, where it says, otherwise, how will God judge the world? If the righteousness of God is manifested upon sinners, upon wicked doers. And in the end, righteousness and glory is seen through his judgment. If these people brought about God's righteousness and glory, why should it be that they are judged? Again, a very foolish statement. One that Paul says, never let such a thing be, be uttered. He goes on to say, if this was the case, there would never be the ability for God to ever punish wrongdoing. It just doesn't hold up. Now let's look at verse 7. For if the truth of God, and the implication is, if the truth of God is, is evident, made manifest in my lie, that is, in my falsehood, then once more, it says, if the truth of God by my falsehood abounds, is made manifest in a mighty way for his glory, then he says once more, why is it that I am still, as a sinner, judged? Now, once more, we need to see this in the way that Paul intends. There are those, and really what they're doing is that they're mocking God and mocking those who speak about a sovereign God in the biblical sense. God, and another aspect of this, and we see this prevalent today 
among many believers is that they want to say something very foolish. Now, the Bible says God is love, but it does not say God is only love. This is the problem. And then what people do is this. They take their view, their understanding of love. They do things such as this. Well, I believe it's loving to always forgive, never to hold on to a grudge, never to punish, never to, and they have all these things. And what they're doing is saying, God, if you're love, you can't do any of these things. But here's the problem. God is not just love, and furthermore, God's definition of love is very different than the world's and probably yours and mine if we render it in our own logical minds. We need to understand that God is love and he loves righteousness. And because God loves righteousness, he hates unrighteousness. Because he loves obedience, he hates disobedience. Now, God is not only love. Let me give an example of that. Now, we're going to come to this in a few months when we get into the ninth chapter of Romans. There, in speaking about two individuals, and that is Jacob, Yaakov, and Esau, Asaph. What does the scripture say there? And this is just quoting the, the Old Testament, where it says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hate. Now, you see, God's love, but God also hates. And that hates causes him to act in a very, very profound and specific manner. Why does God hate Esau? Well, first of all, we can see that he hated Esau because the things that were important to God, Esau was uninterested in. He despised his birthright. Heard a person talking recently on, on television, and he says, you know, Jacob stole Esau's birthright. No, he did not. That person spoke incorrectly, and he's listening too much to wrong teachers. Why? It never says, never says that Jacob stole Esau's birthright. What it says is that Jacob purchased, and Esau understood all of it, in fact, Esau said this, what good is this birthright to me? Why is this birthright to me, seeing that I'm going to die? And then that section ends by Esau saying, saying that it was despised by him, his birthright. The birthright is inherently tied to, tied to the will of God, the purposes of God, God's program for the world. Jacob was interested in that. So we need to see God loves, but because God has love, he also hates. Because God blesses, he also will pronounce curse and bring upon individuals his curse, his judgment, and as we see here, God's wrath. All of this is nothing more than an attempt to say, you know, God will never be wrathful. God, he cannot, if he's righteous, in my degree of righteousness, God can never punish human beings. And what does that do? When someone hears that, it is a catalyst. It motivates that one 
to turn and do what he wants, why he thinks, you know, there's not going to be any consequences. Well, let me tell you very clearly, when you violate the word of God, there are consequences. Sometimes those consequences are eternal. It is only when you repent of sin, you embrace God through receiving that gospel message, then and only then are you going to be forgiven. You will become a recipient of the mercy of God. And what are you going to want to do? You're going to want to serve God. You're going to be committed, as Jacob was, to the purposes of God. Well, let's move on to our last verse, verse 8, where it says, Is it not just as we are blasphemed? Now, some Bibles will say a more modern term that we are slandered. What's interesting is this. Normally, that word for blasphemy, blasphemy is related to God. But because Paul's saying we're being blasphemed, why? because the living God dwells in us by means of the Holy Spirit, that we are in this covenantal relationship with the living God. Therefore, when they speak adversely towards us in an unkind manner, mocking, they are really blaspheming God. So once again, look at verse 8. And is it not just as we have been blasphemed? And just as certain ones have said concerning us, that, that we have said, and here's a false accusation. What you're going to find so frequently is that when you are speaking truth, people are not just going to disagree with you, but they are going to falsely accuse you of saying things that you never said, that, that never ever really was was related to you because what's their motivation they want to discredit you because they don't like the biblical god most of the world if they're not a believer they don't like the biblical god and what's so disheartening is that there are people in local congregations in bible colleges in seminaries those who stand up in conferences large conferences and they are false teachers. They do not speak based upon the authority of this book. What the Bible says, we can say. And when the Bible is not clear or doesn't deal with an issue, we should be silent. You know, I'm amazed how many times people ask questions, and I'll write back to some, and I'll say, well, where is the answer found in the Bible? And they know something. They write back, it's not there. So why are you asking me that question? If the Bible doesn't address it, why in the world would a Bible teacher address it? We have no right to speak anything that's not in his word. So notice, Paul is saying, and he's very well accustomed to this. He says, just as we have been blaspheming, and just as certain ones have said concerning us that we have said, and what is the slanderous remark? That they are accusing Paul and others of saying this. What is it? Let us do evil things. Now, we would never want to do evil things. Let me share with you. God never, did you hear that? God never moves someone to do evil. 
Judas, for example. The scripture does not say that Judas, in delivering Messiah over, that he might be crucified, that Judas was serving God. Never does the scripture say that. What does the scripture say? Satan entered into Judas because he had a love for money. And Satan exploited that, that sinful tendency in the life of, of, of Judas in order to do something that was wrong, something that was improper, something that was a terrible act. Now, is God free to use that which is terrible? God never motivates, never causes. But God is free to use whatever to manifest his glory. That's the heart of what we're talking about. Yes, God, when someone does evil, God can bring his wrath, his judgment upon them that manifests the righteousness of God, the glory of God, the power of God. Praise God for all of that. But let's not think that that person who sinned, who did evil, that that person is serving God or that God led that one to do that. He did not. Therefore, it says, this is this false accusation against the believers, that we say that let us do evil in order that good should come. Let me tell you, many times, evil does not bring anything that's good. Now, I know the verse, we're going to come to it in a few weeks, where it says that, that God, he can do something. He says, all things work together for good for those who love him and call to his purpose. That's true in the end. But do not think because of that statement that that evil that someone did, that which is not good outside of his will, don't think that that didn't harm people, that people didn't suffer, that there's not some truly horrible consequences because someone disobeyed God. God may use it in the end good for us. Praise him for that. But there can be terrible consequences. Don't think that that means everything's good. No, it's good for those who love God and those who are walking according to his purpose. So the false accusation, one last time, it says, let us do evil things. It's in the plural. In order that good shall come. And, and this is, is not what anyone should think. This is not in, in understanding the sovereignty of God. What does Paul say about those who, who teach such things and behave or accuse others of such? He says, in regard to these people, who the judgment of God is justified. God will judge them. So be very clear about something. Our God is a God of grace. He is merciful. He is long-suffering. He is patient. He is loving. But in the end, there is coming a time, as we saw last week, that was referred to this week, when God will judge. And don't think that someone is going to come out okay because this judgment for that deed is manifesting the righteousness and the glory of God. It will do so. To God be the glory. Praise Him. But the one who did that act, they are going to have regret for all of eternity. They're going to experience the wrath of God without any relenting 
forever and ever. God's not pleased with such behavior. I'll close with that. Shalom. Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org. There you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch. These teachings are in video form. You may download them or watch them in streaming video. Until next week, may the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel. Shalom from Israel.